Well, most Christmas songs are about one of two topics. A lot of Christmas songs are about a fat guy in red. And we have some really cool vintage Santa Clauses actually at our house right now set up for holiday celebration. The second topic that's common for Christmas songs would be that of a baby in a manger. And of course, we know that is the true Christmas story, is it not? The wonderful reality of God becoming man while still being God. We call this the glory of the incarnation. We rightly celebrate the songs that we sing, come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the newborn king. Oh, come let us adore him, born the king of angels. We rightly celebrate the birth of Christ. But what makes the cradle, you know, the birth of Christ so special is the cross and the crown. That is to say, Christ's perfect life, his sacrificial death in our place, his burial, his bodily resurrection from the dead, his ascension to glory, and his any moment return and coming in power. It is the cradle and the cross and the crown. We are in a series called The Songs of Christmas. We are looking at four Christmas songs from the Bible. This is week four. The first three weeks, we dialed in, if you were here, on songs that had to do with Jesus in the cradle, had to do with the incarnation. Week one, we looked at the angel's song of peace spoken to the shepherds in the field, Luke chapter two. Week two, we, looked, we went back to Luke chapter one. We looked at Mary's song of joy, the Magnificat. And then week three, last week, Pastor Charles led us in looking at Zechariah's song of freedom. This morning, we're going to fast forward, and we're going to see a fuller picture of Jesus from Revelation chapter 5, a picture of him in glory. I understand it is not a traditional Christmas song, but I, I want it from now on to be a traditional Christmas song for us, because it puts the big picture together. And what we're going to see is this, we're literally moving from a handful of people gathered around uh, baby Jesus in a dim, dark, dirty stable, Christmas story, right? Fast forwarding to, to myriads and myriads of unfallen angelic beings in all creation, creation, worshiping Jesus around the bright glory of heaven's throne. That's where we're going. Now, here, here, here's my goal for this message. Let me just put it on the barrel. Number one, that if you are not a Christian, you would authentically be converted and become a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. I prayed about it. I mentioned it a few minutes ago. A lot of people think that they're Christians just because they've been to church or they've been baptized or maybe a religious figure made some sort of sign over them. That's not how you become a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, I pray that you would leave this place with the greatest gift of all, the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. My other goal is this. For those of us who are Christians, it is true, we so easily put our eyes on lesser glories, do we not? We start living for other things. What are some of the things that we start living for, family? Family? Like, that's a good thing, but that's not God, right? What are some other lesser glories that we live for? Money? What else? Say it again. Status, yep, what else? 
Knowledge, yes. What else? Friendship? Drink, right? Drug? Immorality? But also those good things that you mentioned. Promotion and all the rest. My hope is this. That if you find your confessing Christian, but you find yourself living for lesser glories, whether red light district sins or respectable sins, that you would be so stirred by the compelling picture of Jesus we're going to see in Revelation 5, that you will see that the lamb slain for you is the only one that can hold the weight of what you long for. And the word weight is actually the Old Testament word for glory, doxa or kavod rather, and that you would then be determined in your heart to live for his glory alone. So here's the big idea where we're going this morning. Jesus is worthy, so live for his glory. Can you say that with me? Jesus is worthy, so live for his glory. And I didn't just kind of cherry pick out of thin air the word glory and worthy. You'll see as we walk through this text, it comes right out of our passage. Now, Let me give you a little bit of context. You have Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to be preaching from chapter 5. But the two of them, as many have noted, are uh, talking about one drama. Revelation 4 is Act 1. Revelation 5 is Act 2. So let me kind of set the stage for you. Can I do that? In in, in Revelation chapter 4, Act 1, there is a massive throne. Just picture a massive throne. On that throne is the appearance or visage or image of one who is described as sparkling, radiant, glorious, like precious, precious stones. And he lists off some of those stones. Then around that massive throne with this dazzling figure on it are 24 other smaller thrones. Upon each of those thrones would be 24 elders Not elders in terms of church leaders or people, but the idea most likely there is elder angels or angels of the highest echelon. Then what you have coming from the throne are peals of thunder and bolts of lightning. And up to the atomic age would have been the most visceral and raw display of power known to humanity. And then you have on each side of the massive throne Four different living creatures. They're described as having eyes all over them. Picture that. Six wings. One has the face of an ox, God's power. One has the face of a lion, God's authority. One has the face of a human, God's wisdom. And one has the face of an eagle, God's royalty. And that picture right there would not make you uh, all relax like you're drinking country time lemonade on grandma's recliner. Rather, you'd be going like this, whoa. That's a fearful, fearful scene in Revelation chapter 4. Do you feel me on this one? A weighty scene. On top of that, the four living creatures, they cry day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory, who was and is and is to come. And then the 24 elders of supernatural beings they, they, they keep throwing their crowns before the Lord, saying, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they are and were existed. Now, here, here, here's what's going on there. In act, in, in, in act one, 
Revelation 4, God is receiving glory as, well, God. Now we come to chapter 5. And Jesus, we're going to see as a lamb, lion, a lion, lamb. He's going to receive the same glory that God is. Point is, who's Jesus? God. Now, the world may not recognize that. Jehovah's Witnesses may not recognize that. All kinds of cults may not recognize that. The average lost person, but Jesus Christ is God. The whole point is, Jesus is worthy, so live for his glory. That's where we're going to go. Now, here we go. Act 2, Revelation 5, three basic movements through this text, okay? What we're going to see, number one, is there's a question. The question is found in verse 2. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who here likes dramas? Who here likes plays? Who here likes movies? What makes a good drama, a good play, a good show, a good program, whatever you want to call it, is a dilemma. There's tension building up, a problem that needs to be solved. There is a conundrum. And here the dilemma is, who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? Now, you got to back up a little bit to get the full import of that. Verse 1, Revelation 5, there is again that large throne upon which is the image of the living God. He is holding in his right hand, you can read it, a scroll. Now, these scrolls of that time were made out of papyrus plants, hence they were called papyri. And these plants would be uh, cut in like uh, certain shapes, glued together, pressed together, and they would compose a scroll up to 35 feet long. Now, what's significant is you only typically would write on one side of that papyrus scroll because the other side would be bumpy, it would be hard to write on. Only we learn right here what sides of the scroll are written on? Both sides. What's the big deal with that? The big deal is there is a lot on that scroll. So what is on the scroll? I'm not going to give you all the different interpretations. I'm going to boil down to, I think, the plainest understanding. What is on the scroll in the hand of God, on, in his right hand on the throne is this, is the title deed of history. However, everything's going to play out. In other words, the contents of history, what's going to happen, the course of history, how it's going to happen, and the consummation of history, how it's all going to wrap up. That's what's there. So verse 2, this mighty angel poses the question, who is worthy to open the title deed of history? You, you with me on that? The scroll and break its seals. And by the way, this, this angel right here is not a nice little angel you have on top of your Christmas tree right now. It's not the angel that you might have from a Christmas card. No, man. Fearful, otherworldly, multidimensional being. I, I don't know how you would describe it. The cross, a cross between the Incredible Hulk, uh, your fiercest MMA fighter, uh, and maybe a transformer. I mean, this is an otherworldly being. And he says, who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? Verses three and four, what is John's response? Which, by the way, is remarkable. You got these supernatural, very strong beings, and they're not worthy to open the scroll. John starts weeping. In fact, 
John doesn't just start weeping. He's not like a little dusty, okay? He's not just misting. This cat is wailing away. And it's not because he's super emo. It's not because he's so frustrated because he doesn't know how his eschatology is going to work out. No, D.A. Carson was so helpful on this. In ancient apocalyptic literature, which is what the book of Revelation is, apocalyptic literature, when there was a scroll and there was no one qualified to open that scroll, if the scroll could not be opened, its contents could be not executed. They couldn't be executed. In other words, if there's no one to open the scroll, God's purpose in time of judgment and forgiveness will not be realized. Here's the point. Here's the point. If no one is worthy to open the scroll, then your life is meaningless. Then life is meaningless. History is meaningless. It has no point. Do you know who Revelation was written to in its immediate context? To Christians who were being barbarically tortured under Domitian and under Nero. Here's what these guys would do. They would have these parties, and I'll just use the generic word party, but all kinds of crazy immorality went on in these parties. And they would literally take Christians, coat, coat them with pitch and tar, light them on fire, and they'd be human candles for their party. This book was written to encourage them. In fact, the book of Revelation, by extension, was written to suffering Christians of all time everywhere, including people in this room. One commentator said, if no one can open the scroll, then that means the church is nothing but a sham. And that means the suffering of Christians is pointless. It means yesterday didn't mean anything. Today doesn't really mean anything. And tomorrow won't mean anything. There's no right. There's no wrong. There's no objective truth. You figure it out on your own until you go off into the dark abyss. It's just whatever. Whatever you want to say, that's cool. Now, I just described to you something that you may not use the word, but many people have embraced. It's a philosophy of life called existentialism. Existentialism. You ever heard that expression? What this, what this worldview says is this, that there is no God that gives purpose and meaning to life. It's up to us to decide that. There is, there's no God who gives purpose and meaning to life and history and all that. No, 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 no. You, you decide for yourself what you want meaning to be, purpose and significance and all of that. The father of this was a guy named Soren Kierkegaard from the 1800s, but the, a big proponent in the 1900s was Bertrand Russell. You ever heard the name Bertrand Russell? He would vacillate between being an atheist, God doesn't exist, and, ag and an agnostic. Well, maybe he does, but we can't know for sure. This is what he wrote in his autobiography, quote, there is darkness without, and when I de die, there will be darkness within. In a way, he's kind of right, but not the way he's saying. There is no splendor, no vastness anywhere, only triviality for a moment, and then nothing. And this is what he said on his deathbed. Before he died, he was asked about his post-death hopes, and he said, quote, I have nothing to hang on to but grim, unyielding despair. Existentialism. That's where you deciding what's right and wrong takes you. And sadly, existentialism is still alive today. 
Have you ever received an email that says, now what's your gender? You ever get that? That's existentialism, that you get to decide what has already been decided by a God who creates us male and female in his image, right? Do you ever hear people say, this is my truth, or this is his truth, or this is her truth? Truth is truth. Apart from whether we agree with it or not, we don't invent truth. We do not have the ability to decide things such as the existence of God or our gender and everything else between. And you can play that game, and that's what it is, and you can feed that illusion, or better yet, delusion, that you somehow have the power to give life purpose and meaning and definition and significance. But sooner or later, and sooner better than later, all the things that people prop up and lean on to for purpose, for meaning, for, for glory. What were some of those things we mentioned in lesser glories? Family, what else? Money, what else? Achievement, what else? Friday night, the next drink, whatever, right? All those things that you lean on and to prop you up, to give life purpose and meaning and all that will crumble, and when they crumble, they will crush you. D.A. Carson said something to the effect, and I'll add to his description my own um, additions. He says, quote, you can surround yourself with toys and playthings only so long, but sooner or later, you get arthritis, you get a cancer diagnosis, a job loss, a loved one dies, your accomplishments lose their shine. Gender reassignment was not all that it was cracked up to be. One of your kids goes off the rails. Your marriage is in triage. The young upstart gets the promotion you've been working all these years for to get, and, and he gets it or she gets it. You lose your parents. You yourself are on death's doorstep. You see, the time is coming when the ruse of finding your glory in these lesser things will come to a crashing halt. So better sooner than later. Because this stuff does satisfy for a moment, doesn't it? It's like plated gold. It sparkles for a while, but man, it starts chipping. And to, go, to use the imagery of 1 Peter chapter 2, all of those things that we put our stock in, they wither like the grass and they fade like the flower. So praise God for verse 5, going back to our text. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That means there is purpose to history, both globally, macroscopically, but also microscopically and personally for you. There is. There is purpose. You say, I don't know how there could be any purpose in my life. You don't know what's happened to me. Yeah, life can be really tough. We'll get to that. Life can be really rough, but what if there is a sovereign God working for his glory and your good behind through all that stuff? There is. There is one who is worthy to open the scroll. There is purpose to history. And I can just imagine John's tears of wailing of pain becoming tears of pleasure and joy as he learns that there is one worthy. Now, there's no way, no way, because i got to close out this first point really quickly. There's no way I can unpack everything here, but I will say this. These expressions tell us the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, 
that the Old Testament pointed to Jesus again and again, from Genesis to Exodus, all the way through Malachi and the rest of the Old Testament. It pointed to Jesus. And for me, or maybe for you as well, two things stand out. Number one, there is a lion. Now, one o'clock today, hopefully, the roar will continue to be restored. We beat Minnesota and win the division. But the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's never had to have his roar restored. He is a lion. And this lion, second of all, this jumps out to me, has conquered. Do you see that? In this verse that I just read, he's conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. So point one, there's a question, a conundrum, a dilemma, tension building up, who's worthy to open the scroll? They say, oh, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's, he, he, he can do it. And because he's a lion and because he's conquering, this second point is, qu- is quite shocking. Because now we're going to see, boom, the spotlight shift, the spotlight shift. What did John just hear from the angel? Who is worthy to open the scroll? What does he hear? Who's worthy? A lion. A lion. What does he see? Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a what? Wait. He just heard lion roar, conquering. And now he sees a lamb. There's some disconnect there, isn't there? Why would you see that? I remember when I was in high school, I had a chivet. Chivet. Let me be clear on that. Uh, Not exactly a racy, sexy color. It was brown, okay? Not like cherry red or candy apple or anything like that. Brown chivet. And what's more is I had paint splatters all over it because I had a little painting company that I did in the summer. We put the extension ladder on it and the paint and everything like that. And so it was kind of marked up. People would ask me, say, hey, what do you drive? I would tell them, I drive a vet. I didn't say Chevet. I'd say, I drive a vet. Like, oh, that's pretty cool. Then they would see me, wah, wah, wah. They didn't see a Corvette. They saw a Chevette. There was quite a letdown. And at first blush, there's kind of quite a letdown right here. We're going from, hey, there's a lion and... Wah, 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 a lamb. Now, we're going to come back to that, but I want to make the point, because the text does, that you can't just saunter up into God's presence any old way, because God is holy, holy, holy. You try, you try, I, church family knows that I'm either the third, fourth, or fourth cousin of President Joe Biden. What would happen if there was a motorcade in the city, and I tried to get close to that stretch limo? What would happen to me? I'd be on my face, right? Or next time you go to D.C., why don't you hop the fence and get up to the Oval Office and say hello to President Joe? How would that work? You'd be on your face. If you can't just go up into a president's presence, how much less the living God? And yet Jesus right here is standing right there. He has access. Do you see that? And there's all kinds of imagery. We don't have the time to unpack, but he has got seven horns, seven meaning perfect. He's got perfect power. That is omnipotent. He has uh, seven eyes, means he sees everything, even you right now, our hearts. There ain't no secrets to God. He's omniscient. That's what it means. He knows everything. He has the seven spirits of God. He has the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God. 
But I, I say to you, what is most shocking is the fact that this lion is a lamb. Lion and lambs don't get together too good, do they? The only thing they share is a meal if that meal is the lamb, right? What's even more shocking is not just that the lion he hears about looks like a lamb, but this description right here, as though it had been slain. What? Nah, that's really wah, wah, wah. I heard lion, roaring lion, then I see a lamb, and then I can tell it has been slain. But it's what? Now, I'm sorry for the 14 billion deer hunting illustration, but here it is, okay? Deer hunters know that when you connect with a deer, shoot it, to harvest it, to eat the delicious venison, sometimes it drops right on the spot, sometimes it runs 75 yards, but ultimately, if you barreled it up, lung shot, it is a lifeless heap on the ground. It's been slain, right? This lion lamb has been slain, but he's not a lifeless heap on the ground. What is he doing? What's his posture right here? He's what? He's standing. He's standing. Maybe you say, okay, okay, I'm tracking with you. He was a lamb slain who's now standing. I'm with you on this one. But how can you say he conquered? when he was slain. How can you tell me he, he conquered <coughs> when he was slain? You know what the answer to that is? That's precisely how he conquered. That's it right there. That's it. Jesus Christ died on the cross to bear the judgment that us sinners deserve from a holy God. And he did so that we could be forgiven we could be reconciled back to God and brought into God's family. We're going to sing a song in just a few minutes when we wrap up this sermon. Is he worthy? It's based on this text. And the lyrics, some of the lyrics go like this. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seals and open the scroll? And then this refrain, the lion of Judah who conquered the grave, he is David's root and the lamb who died to ransom the slave. That's us, slaves to sin. And Jesus died to set us free. He is the lamb who rules by laying, he is the lion who rules by laying down his life as a lamb and rising again in power. And that's why in the introduction, I put three words together. I want to see if you remember them. There's the cradle and then there's the what? The cross, and there's what? The crown. That's the full picture of Jesus. There's so much more I could say, but i got to wrap up the second point with just a few more words. I want to point this out, that if you're a Christian, if you've repented of your sin and turned to Jesus Christ, and you're going to be with the Father and all of God's kids forever in the new heavens and new earth, you're not going to be up there ever, ever, ever and be like, man, this joint is sweet. How did you get up here? Well, I have no idea, but I agree. This is, this is great up here. No, you'll never, ever, ever, ever get over why you're near and dear to a thrice holy God because they're standing as the centerpiece of heaven, a lamb standing as though he had been slain. Never going to get over the fact that Jesus Christ is why we are near and dear to the eternal God. 
So let me ask you, are you saved? Have you turned to Jesus Christ? Again, I'm not asking if you've been baptized. I'm not asking if you've been through confirmation. I'm not asking if you read your Bible. I'm asking you, has there been a point in your life when you understand I'm a sinner who deserves God's judgment, but he also loves me and gave his son to take away my sin by his death, burial, and resurrection? If you have turned to Jesus, or if you turned to him this morning, you are part of the great company of Christians from every era in Revelation chapter 7. John gives us a beautiful picture of that. He says, after this I looked, and behold, people from every nation, every ethnos, every ethnicity, every tribe, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Are you in that company of saints from every era? Or you go back to Revelation chapter 6, for those who do not receive the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, this is, this is what's going to happen. I have to be honest with you, right? You want me to lie to you? I, I wouldn't be worth my salt as a preacher if I didn't tell the whole truth. And the truth is, their day is coming when people who rejected Christ, they will cry out, Revelation 6, verse 16, fall on us, saying to the mountains, and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Wrath of the Lamb? Wrath of the Lamb, yes. So which group are you in? And believers, I know, I know, I know, it does seem often like evil is winning, does it not? And righteousness is losing. You live any length of time, life is going to throw you some serious gut punches. And it can be very discouraging. We're going to come to that next week, right on that theme. Great way to end the year from back in the Gospel of Matthew. Make no doubt, let me just say this about this matter. We are in a war. You know that. There's a spiritual war going on. But Revelation 17, 14 says, they will make war against the lamb, that is the false prophet, the beast, the world system, and all that. And the, but the lamb will conquer them. The lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with them are called and chosen and faithful. So make no mistake about it. Jesus has conquered, and history is securely in his nail-pierced hand. So there is a question the spotlight swings, an alarming uh, vision right there of a lion lamb. And then finally, this passage ends with an avalanche of worship, an avalanche of worship. Verse 8, and when he, Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, which I described, and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You can see when he opens the scroll, what do they do? They worship. That's why I say an avalanche of worship. I do want to call two things out of that verse, though. What instrument is being played here? A harp. Now, if we're honest, when we think of harp, going back to unbiblical images of angel, angels, we think of a small little chubby cherub with like a white sheet on it, right? On a fluffy cloud playing a little harp, the kind of app you can download to good night music, right? Very peaceful, serene music. But Bible commentators and historians tell us that harps at that time were nothing like that. They're actually very joyful instruments, very raucous instruments, if you will. 
to reflect celebration. And a couple of the commentators suggested the closest equivalent would be a banjo. If you ever hear somebody energetically play the banjo, what do you find your toes doing after a while? Tapping. And what do you find in your hand? Even if you can't clap and beat like me, you find yourself going like this, right? If not, standing to your feet and dancing and shouting. The point is, this is celebratory stuff. Christmas is a celebration. The lamb has overcome. The lamb has conquered by being slain and rising again. And then you have this. I, I hit this Wednesday night. I'll do so briefly here again. Golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Do you ever feel like your prayers don't count for nothing? Anybody here? Because we've all prayed for stuff and it didn't come to pass. So we conclude, therefore, my prayers don't matter. But we walk by faith and not by sight. And this passage reminds us that our prayers, they're pleasing to God. They're like incense. And they're precious to God. They're stored in his presence in golden bowls. So family, even when you can't understand it, let's keep praying. Now for the avalanche of worship, Domino One. And they, the four and 24, sang a new song. Listen to the lyrics of a top 10 song in the playlist to heaven. Worthy are you. Remember he said, who's worthy? What's he saying here? What are they saying here? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Listen, if, if, if unfallen angels, these four and 24, of the highest echelon of God's angelic system, are praising God with a new song and praising him that the lamb was slain. Though they will themselves not experience the salvation, will they? Well, angels experience this. No. Unfallen ones don't need redemption. They're not humans. Fallen ones will never be redeemed. We know that from scripture. They're never gonna experience this and yet they're praising God with a new song for the lamb that was slain. If they do that, how much more should we? Can you say what the psalmist in Psalm 107, for the Lord is good, the Lord is gracious. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, who he has redeemed out of trouble. Can you say that? Can you say what the psalmist, he has put a new song in my heart, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and trust in the Lord. There's so many definitions of a Christian. One definition of a Christian is someone who has, put, has a new song in their heart to the Lord. First, kindness and grace and mercy. That's, that's domino one. Now, domino two. Avalanche two, number verses 11 and 12. He says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads. That means basically hundreds of millions. And then thousands of thousands, basically untold millions. Anybody here ever been to the big house on a... Michigan football Saturday. How many do they pack into that place now? A lot. 110,000. Yes, sir. Watching what I hope to be is the best team in football. We'll see about that. And they're almost chanting in unison. You might have 15,000, 20,000 fans from the other team, but they're almost shouting in unison, you know, hail to the victors. There's something very compelling about that, isn't there? Here you have untold millions of angels and unisons 
shouting with a loud voice, worthy, there it is again, is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And again, I just call out there the word glory. There's seven descriptions of what he's worthy for, seven being perfection in biblical numerology, meaning perfect praise, perfect glory. Avalanche number three, verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. What's he saying there? Every potential creature, animate, inanimate. You say, how can inanimate objects praise God? Do you know that one day uh, Jesus was, it was actually Palm Sunday, I think it was. He's riding into Jerusalem. He's receiving praise from the, from the everyday folk. The Pharisees don't like that. You tell them to shut up. And what does Jesus say? I can make the rocks cry out in praise. What is this telling us? Well, in the heavens, untold millions, if not billions of stars and planets. How about that? Under the sea, untold numbers and yet undiscovered sea creatures seven miles down in the Marianas Trench. From the gazelles and and zebras of of the plains of Kenya to the speckled Trout and rainbow trout of the streams of South Dakota. Everything is praising Jesus. And again, here's what they're saying. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then you have this fourth avalanche. Back to the four and 24. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, I just want to know, are you in this avalanche? Are you in this avalanche of praise? Can you cry, worthy is a lamb who was slain, not for them, but for me? Can you say amen to this, that Jesus is worthy, so I want to live for his glory? I want to be clear on this, and I am wrapping up. God doesn't need any of our praise. You know that? God doesn't need this praise. God doesn't need our praise. God is eternally self-existent. He's eternally self-sufficient. He is eternally in perfect communion with himself in joy as Father, Son, and Spirit. There's a fancy theological term for this. Theologians call this the aseity of God, that God is good in himself. God doesn't, it's not Thursday up in heaven and the Lord's looking at his watch saying, man, I can't wait for Sunday to come along. I really need to get my praise from down there. No, no, God is sufficient in himself. However, in his mercy and in his love, he he comes to redeem us, Christ in the cradle, Christ on the cross, Christ wearing a crown, to redeem us and call us into relationship with him so that we can live for his glory. And that really is infinitely merciful and loving because living for his glory and some of you don't believe this yet, is far more satisfying than living for your own. And if you say that's not true, you just, you got to look at the big picture. You just, the long, long game, long game. Patriots, Super Bowl a few years back against the Falcons, they were down, what, 25 points, Super Bowl 51, and they came back. But if you were a Patriots fan in that first or second quarter, you'd probably be like, oh, well... Let's go watch the commercials or whatever, right? I'm telling you, Jesus wins. 
He conquers. He holds the title deed of the universe in his hands, the contents, course, and consummation of history. Just read the last few chapters of the book of Revelation. I invite you to do that. If you like, what do I do with this truth? Read the last two chapters of Revelation. St. Augustine once said, our hearts find no rest until they find their rest in Christ. We could say that about every theme we've looked in this Christmas series. Our hearts find no peace until they find their peace in Christ. Our hearts find no joy until they find their joy in Christ. Hearts find no freedom until they find their freedom in Christ. So, you know, tomorrow you're going to open up some gifts. Maybe, maybe you do it tonight. So ex- thankful for the initiative to provide gifts for so many kids, um, Angel Tree. And, 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 and most of us are going to open up some gifts somewhere along the way. And gifts are really cool, aren't they? They're expressions of love. They're nice. They're fun. But let's be honest. Let's be honest. Most of these, all these gifts are going to wear out, aren't they? In fact, their newness to us will probably wear out before they actually physically wear out. Won't they? What was exciting tonight or tomorrow, maybe by March, won't be so exciting. And that's kind of a parable, is it not, of all those other things we try to find significance in, right? And glory in and purpose in. But the great paradox is this. That when you turn from living for your glory and said for the glory of Christ, you actually find what you were longing for the whole time when you were looking for glory in all your own ways. Acceptance? Are you kidding me? You have acceptance with one who was the centerpiece of heaven. Identity? Here he just said, we, they, they sing about it. We're a kingdom of priests. And purpose, you have a purpose now to reflect the one who is the ultimate conqueror and before whom one day all people will bow. Jesus is worthy. So may this Christmas compel us to live for his glory.